Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Jenny Chabot, an Associate Professor of Child and Family Studies at Ohio University, and we'll be discussing various forces that are changing the nature of what it means to be a student and teacher going into the future. Dr. Chabot is a faculty member in the Department of Social and Public Health. Jenny received numerous teaching awards as a faculty member at Ohio University, including the University Professor Award and the Laura Chapman Outstanding Advisor Award. In 2009, she was chosen as one of the state of Ohio's College Professors for Excellence in Teaching by Ohio Magazine, and she was also selected to participate in the Burning Teaching Academy program at Ohio University. She is currently on sabbatical leave and is in the role as a Fulbright Scholar at McMaster's University in Canada. Jenny, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Let's actually start, Jenny, by talking about your background as a teacher and scholar. I know that you come at uh, exploring issues related to childhood from a unique scholarly perspective, and you also teach courses that goes um, actually a little bit broader than maybe your, your personal scholarship. Can you talk about your background a little bit and sort of the perspective that you bring on, on you know what it means to be a kid today? Um, yes. Um, well, the teaching responsibilities I have at Ohio University, I am the coordinator of our child, child and family studies program. Um, so with myself and the other faculty, we run a program that's gotten fairly large over the past um, 10 years. It's tripled in size, um, which we're very excited about. Um, and I specifically direct the Child Life Program, um, which, are, which involves students who are going to be uh, working in healthcare settings, predominantly children's hospitals, helping them navigate the healthcare experiences that they're having and providing support for the parents, the caregivers, the siblings, and the patients themselves. Um, so I, right now, most of my responsibilities are teaching the child life courses. I'm a certified child life specialist. Um, I'm the only one on full-time faculty. Um, so I oversee those classes, which include children and family and healthcare settings, we have an introduction to child life to introduce it to our undergrads who are interested in that possibility. I also teach uh, an advanced child life course for our seniors and our second-year grad students and teach a graduate-level course that is specifically related to theories and foundations of child life. I also teach a large lecture span, large um, lifespan class, a large lecture um, that's a group two, uh, and uh, that deals with everything from infancy to aging and everything in between. So that's a really wonderful opportunity uh-huh. for me to do whole sco- scope of lifespan. Um, so that's my teaching. And then scholarship, um, the past years, as I've gotten more involved in the world of child life, that's where the focus of my uh, research has been. Um, right now, while I'm here, I'm continuing a project, um, uh, a phase three of a project, on ambiguous loss, which is uh, helping, working with families who are identifying the loss that they experience in a hospital setting. Besides, you know, even if their child, um, you know, we, we work with many, many families whose children go on to recover, but there are also multiple losses in those experiences. So I've been talking with child life specialists, um, working on an IRB now to go back to families, patients, and siblings about where they identify those losses. Um, for example, uh, I 
have a great concern about the time that children lose in the school setting, for example. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a loss that we need to acknowledge, and we do acknowledge in the world of child life. Uh, another area of research I um, have been embarking on for the past couple of years is on emotion work, um, uh, which is its own body of scholarship, but nobody has made a connection between the lived experiences of certified child life specialists and the kind of emotion work they're doing. And mm-hmm. this is a concept bigger than just, you know, dealing with emotions on the job. Um, it's how they are often the point person that navigates the relationships between a doctor and his or her patient and that family. So the child life specialist is the person who has to not only navigate their own emotions, but they're helping families navigate their emotions. Um, and there's a lot of tension in, in healthcare work um, between, you know, a child life specialist who wants to fight for a parent to be present during um, an induction or during a procedure, but the, the medical person does not want that parent present. And that child life specialist is in the role of saying, but here's why it matters that mom or dad is there. Here's why it matters to the patient. Here's why it matters developmentally. So there's a lot of navigating of that. So that's something sure. I'm also doing. So, so it sounds to me like, although you clearly have a, a specific specialization on childhood in, in medical settings, that, that you bring a very broad and holistic perspective to the notion of childhood. Yep, absolutely. And that's, that's where our program tends to be a little different than some of the other helping professions is we do bring a very holistic, systematic perspective. Um, you know, we don't just look at the patient. We look at what is that patient's story? What's the context of that experience? And, I, and actually, I, that's what I do with my teaching. I, I just feel like, um, you know, and I think those of us who have, who have worked on teaching, you included, Scott, um, is that we, we don't look at a student in isolation. We look at that student as a holistic person with all of these lived experiences that are going to impact, you know, how they're navigating their way here at Ohio mm-hmm. University. Um, so I think that that's just a really built-in portion of our, of our program and the professions that our students go on to. Sure. Well, we'll unpack some of those details as we go through the program, but, but let's start with a little bit of a broader question. And it seems to me, and in, in sort of reflecting on the things that I've noticed as a teacher, uh, that the notion of childhood, uh, and then even at a young adulthood, has changed dramatically, perhaps, from when uh, you and I were growing up. Is that something that you've observed? And and if so, you know, can can you talk about that a little bit about some of the layers that go into that change and and what it means to be a child today? Yeah, I and I do talk a lot about this in my in my lifespan. We actually um, look at uh, how has child or how has childhood changed, and I'm amazed that even you know when we moved to semesters, we started offering the lifespan class to first year and second year students, where it had only been juniors and seniors, and even those 18 year olds who are not too far removed from their own childhoods are saying it's drastically changed within just a couple of years. They see what their siblings are pressured, are dealing with pressures that they feel they never had to deal with. Hmm. Um, and that's always interesting. And that has, you know, I've taught this class for 18 years, and that comes up time and time again. So it's so just interesting to, to see that. Um, you know, and, and there's just, uh, it, it's, a different, it's a different culture we're living in right now. And I think particularly with social media. Um, you know, there's a new book by Nancy Sales out that I'm really anxious to get my hands on. Um, so 
social media and the secret lives of American teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I've been reading a lot of the press releases on it. Um, and that's just, it's, it's a, it's a scary thing. Um, and I think it's something we need to be upfront about of the good and bad of social media and how that's impacting our, our childhood. Um, with today's children, we've we've got a lot of families, and I, this is this comes from a variety of scholars um, that I've you know that I pull from, and and um, and the things that I teach in the lifespan when I'm talking about childhood. But um, there's a concept of are we stealing childhood, and mm-hmm. who's who's stealing it? Um, and we meaning, and I always say we meaning everybody, not pointing fingers specifically at at you know at individual things but what do you think that means when scholars say we're stealing childhood and the conversations i mean you know you get 150 students and they're just all talking they all have something to say about this and most tend to agree that that we're pushing kids too fast um you know i don't come from the education perspective where they're really focusing on you know the amount of testing and and right. you're a parent yourself you've probably no doubt seen this in your daughter having to be pressured to take these tests really early on right. and in my profession we you know play is the most important part you know we do play therapy we do therapeutic play we do medical play to teach children about what's happening to them um and but we also say please don't take play away from children this is their world so I work in a world and teach students about how do we make sure childhood isn't stolen in this weird, unusual environment they're in. These hospital rooms with where they're being poked and prodded and tested and they're isolated from their friends and peers and their world, their comfort, their bedroom. Um, and so I, I kind of take what, what's happening out there and then put the layer of hospitalization on it. Um, you know, certainly we're, we're, we're not... Uh, we're so inundated what's happening with bullying. Right. Not, and again, these things have existed through time. But when we have new formats to have these things exist, it brings up a whole new world. Um, I think an example I think of as a child, when you are present after you've said something damaging to a child and you can see the look on his or her face and you can see the hurt and the pain and you can feel empathy we rid we we don't have that experience when we do online bullying mm-hmm. um and and the use of social media and how it can really crush people and children who don't have the developmental capabilities to work through that so i do think we're you know living in a very different era um and we have to make sure that childhood still exists so, Jenny, you, you've already touched on the role of technology as well as some other pressures that are changing what it means to be a child. As an educator, when you think about uh, sort of these forces that are changing the nature of childhood, do you have uh, do you have a hunch on how that might start to influence how kids are interfacing with educational settings? So, you know, it goes beyond just their social world and impacts when they walk in your classroom as a student. I mean, do you, do you have a suspicion on how that might influence them as students? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I think I think, it, and I think it's harder to be a professor in today's world. Um, certainly in the 18 years I've been here, you know, uh, there's so many distractions and, you know, I'm probably not the first person to bring that up. It may seem very obvious, but it's also very true. There are, there, we have distracted students. This is a, I feel it's a generation of distracted students. 
I'm also getting um, feedback. I, I do all of our interns, so I shepherd about 60 interns a year through the process, whether they're a child life intern or working with older adults in a senior citizen setting or working with at-risk youth. And the number one complaint I get um, from supervisors when there are issues is this is a really distracted person. They're not focused. They're using their digital technology when they should be talking to a family. Um, so we address that very early on in, in our classes. But it's, it is, you know, it's, it's um, I think, developmentally 20, 21, 22-year-olds think they're very, very savvy at multitasking when they're just not. Um, and, again, I've seen that impacted in my, my own classroom experience of teaching. Um, but I also still see, you know, a great majority of students wanting to be very engaged in their experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know that there's been a lot of dialogue in, in higher education about, you know, the American university disappearing and, you know, it's all going to be online someday. And I don't believe that for a second because, um, you know, as faculty members, we're also advisors and I probably have anywhere from 70 to 90 advisees per semester. Um, and when I meet with them, students struggle with that kind of learning. Um, I don't think we're ever going to erase, and I'm not saying for everybody, but we still have a very strong population that needs those interpersonal connections with each other. Uh-huh. And I see that in the classroom. They want meaning of their experiences and find that that meaning of experience, can, or those connections can always be replicated with where we're going. Yeah, I, uh, I I totally agree with what you're saying. It seems like when I encounter uh, a lot of students, you know, walking around the halls here, that there is that that very intense desire for personal connection, uh, despite the fact that as you're talking to them, they might also be checking their cell phone, you know. But there there does seem to be a recognition among the, the students that I encounter on a daily basis that that they still value those personal connections with not only their peers, but also their instructors, and they, they seek out mentoring relationships. Uh, I think that's, a, that's an interesting dichotomy of the impression that we might typically have of the millennial and post-millennial students. Yep, absolutely. And the other thing, too, is what we end up ignoring is, again, because I teach this, I focus, you know, in my classes, we talk about later adolescence, that 18 to 22 year age span. And, and so please know, I say this, acknowledging that Ohio University, like many other universities, we attract people of all demographics, but we still have a very large body of students who fall into that more traditional age group. And developmentally, going to college is a major life event. Mm-hmm. Um, for 18 years, I've had them write life, life marker papers where they discuss the life markers and events across their lifespan so far that they believe shaped who they are today. And nine times out of ten, students talk about coming to college as one of their major lifespan. And they're still in the midst of it. They're not even 20 years removed reflecting back on this time period. We're never going to lose that. <laughs> I don't <laughs> care what scholars who are out there saying, you know, the university is disappearing. There will be no longer be physical. It's like, oh, have you talked to a 21-year-old whose who's experience of being a college student and going away is so incredibly meaningful? That's mm-hmm. never going to go away. That's a, that's a major developmental issue. Yeah. And we tend to ignore those aspects of development when we have a lot of these conversations. 
Yeah. Je- Jenny, in your research and teaching, you explore the roles of larger family structures in a child's development and then look at that, especially as it interfaces with medical settings. And, and just a little bit earlier, you were talking about the concept of, of ambiguous loss. Can you talk about some of the stressors that you see happening within family structures as it impacts children? Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of the overall stressors that um, certainly, again, a lot of these have been existence through time, although we certainly uh, know more about it. Um, and before I kind of talk about some of the stressors, there, there's scholarly debate within my own profession about are families in decline or are they just changing? So when I um, teach the large lecture class, that's the first question I ask them on the first day to do an in-class activity. Do you think families, you know, on a continuum, where would you place yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, most of them put them there somewhere in decline. <clears throat> or, you know, we have we do have a smaller percentage that say, you know, they're not in decline. They're just working hard in a changing environment. Um, so and then I ask them to say, why do you think we're doing okay or why do you think we're in decline? And it seems like their answers are really in tune to actually what the stressors that I see and talk about. Um, you know, financial, when families are faced with financial issues, that sets off a whole other group of stressors. Uh, we, we talked already about just kind of this concept of children and families moving too fast, um, not taking time to slow down and just be as a family. Um, I mean, as much as we say that there's overscheduled children, look at us as adults. <laughs> look at us mm-hmm. as faculty. You know, we're overscheduled. We move too fast. So are we, are we setting up um, role modeling that is not good for our kids? Uh, do we take time just to be, or are we running from this event to this event to this event? Um, and so, and there are some scholars working with communities to help meeting with coaches and spiritual leaders and educators to say, and teenagers themselves and children to say, how can we slow us down um, mm-hmm. and, and just be? One of the things that I did not know until a couple of weeks ago is that when we have President's Day in the United States, Canada has Family Day. And it is four years old, and they instituted it. Um, it's a day off. It's a, it's a government holiday. Um, and all of the museums and local attractions are free, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, for the day. And the idea is that families spend time together. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, my gosh, I love that. And a lot of the colleagues that I'm working with at McMaster's, that's what they did with their families that day. They, they either went away for a long weekend together or they just explored the environments they're in. Mm-hmm. And they... One of the reasons they set this is because this belief that we're just moving too fast. Um, I think, um, you know, we, we, you know, certainly we have a lot of issues right now that are, are facing families with, um, I mean, you can't ignore, I, I don't want to use the word broken families. Um, I, I've never uh, liked that word. But we do have a lot of changing family structures, step families that don't know how to be step families quite yet. Um, we do have children of divorce um, who are, navigating those relationships. And again, I think our job is to put more information out there about how do we do this successfully and maintaining, you know, our family connections and our children being okay through this. Um, You know, we have children who have a lot of time after school Mm -hmm. and making sure that those are filled, you know, productively. Uh, We have a lot of standards of comparison today. Um, Not just, you know, their house is better, but their stuff is better. You know, we live in a celebrity culture that seems like it's getting stronger and stronger with Instagram and 
Twitter and everybody following these celebrities and emulating them and um, kind of that's grown a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And again, through a lot of the venues we have, and I think those create <clears throat> stressors on childhood and families. Um, so those are just a few that come to mind um, that I know I spend time talking about. Yeah, it's a very um, broad of community. Yeah, very broad. Yeah, very mm-hmm. broad landscape. You know, a little bit earlier you were talking about the uh, concept of emotionality, and I think you were talking about it in in relation to. Uh, the future professionals that you're training and how they work with families in in different settings. Have you thought about the concept of emotionality as it relates to the children themselves and and how that plays a role in sort of their developmental experiences? Yeah, I mean, certainly, again, in the lifespan class, we talk about that a lot. Um, Certainly, I talk about it a lot with hospitalized children, again, with a whole different layer. But if you're looking at generally in childhood, you know, emotional development from infancy on is a critical part of our of our holistic development, impacted by so many things. Um, you know, and when we get into that kind of middle childhood age, you know, the 8, 9, 10, into early adolescence, you know, preteens and teenagers, um, it's it can be a really tough time to be able to sort out is what what is going on with this child? Is it because of all of the developmental hormonal stuff that's happening, you know, you know, oh, that's the, you know, the stereotypical emotional teen, mm-hmm. or is this a child who's really struggling <clears throat> and in some danger? Um, and parents or caregivers or, and loved ones are seeing some change. Like, this is, something's going on here. I think that's really tough for parents to sort out in today's world. How do you know? Is it a teenager being a, te- a moody teenager or something deeper going on there? Mm-hmm. Um and I think what's hard with emotionality in particular is, you know, we've got of as adults in children's lives, um, give children room um, to develop emotionally, uh, give them venues to and outlets that are healthy to deal with those. Um, but we're also in a world where children and adults, you know, can hide, you know, through social media, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a lot can be um, secretive. Um, and again, adults in society were just as guilty as children. Uh, and I think that adds a whole scarier element to our need to talk about emotional development and what does healthy emotional development look like? And it doesn't have to be perfect. It could be mood swings. It could be dark days. Um, it could be, but we need to give children and equip them with abilities to talk through these things. Mm-hmm. To what extent do peers play a, play a role in this? I know that, you know, you, you, look a lot at the family, but, but of course, we know that the peers that, that children and students have also influences them. Have you, do, you, do you explore those topics at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, both with hospitalized children in the classes I teach and also in the lifespan, peers are huge. Um, I, you know, it's not only is it a major developmental theme of childhood, especially, again, when you start moving into middle childhood around that six, seven, eight. We're moving from just, you know, playmates and um, understanding, you know, or thinking everybody's our friend, <laughs> everybody's our best friend, to really starting to understand and move into that peers play a really important role. Um, you know, they teach us a lot. We learn so much about social interactions from our peers. Um, we listen to peers in ways we don't listen to adults. Um, so major influence. And then as we move along the lifespan and into those teen years, those concepts of friendship and peer or peers starts to layer more. 
You start to have peers that you don't really get along with. You start to have peers that you have deep, meaningful relationships with. You may have peers that you have sexually intimate relationships with. Um, you have peers that you're classmates with. You have peers that you're on teams with. And there's so much learning as we start to kind of layer these team, these peer experiences. So I think they continue today to be a very influential and meaningful um, aspect of children's lives. Um, and so in the hospital setting, we make sure those aren't lost. Uh, that's where technology can be wonderful. Um, for example, here in Canada, I'm, I'm learning about um, a cross-Canada program called Eucopolis. One of my faculty, or one of the faculty I'm working with oversees that. And it's a way for children to connect with each other who have the same diagnosis mm-hmm. um, at, at hospitals all throughout Canada. So they have, uh, you know, HIPAA-protected chat rooms and um, can connect with each other through digital technology. And then we also make sure that peers have a very present role, um, that hospitalized children don't lose that, that their friends understand, that we go into the classrooms and help the class understand what's happening to his to their classmates. Um, we do that, of course, with the permission of the parents, you know, the caregivers and the, and the patient. Um, but we have children who are going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. They're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. And so we try to help the peers understand so they'll stay connected and realize the value that even though your friend is in the hospital, he or she still really needs your con- connections with you. Um, so we pay particular attention to that um, mm-hmm. because we know it's so vital and important. So one of the takeaways in, in hearing, you know, in, in our conversation that I that I bring you know, from it is that as a teacher, we need to understand that when a student walks into our classroom, there are several layers of their social and, and family life that really walks in that classroom with them. And that really, if we're going to be on our A game as a teacher, we're understanding that those different layers are all part of our classroom experience with that student. Yes. Um, let's switch gears just a little bit then. And uh, we've been talking about, you know, sort of your uh, teaching and scholarly perspectives on children. I want to talk about you as a teacher for a moment. You've been named university professor twice at Ohio University. And uh, just for the listeners, the university professor designation is actually an award uh, that is our, uh, you know, one of our most distinguished teaching awards that is selected by the students on a yearly basis. And you've, and you've been named that multiple times. One of the great benefits of being named a university professor is that you get to teach any course that you want to. Uh, you're not beholden to a department chair or a dean, you get to select a course and teach it. What were the courses or what were some of the courses that you taught and why did you want to teach those? Okay. Um, That's such a fun question. (laughs) It was fun developing the courses. Um, The first one I did was uh, media portrayal of families. It's simply because I was a child who grew up, you know, watching the Brady Bunch, Mm -hmm. you know, while my parents were divorcing and uh, just was really impacted by, you know, how television portrayed families. And I was so curious about what students thought, how were they impacted? Because, you know, that was generations removed from my own. Um, So I just had a fascination with that topic. Um, And then the second one I taught was friendship and family. And that came out of, the large lifespan class and every semester doing a, um, when we got around to middle childhood, 
I did a, I do an exercise that has them look at their own child, their own friendships. And I would say, you know, who are, who were your friends then? Who, what were you attracted to? What made you choose a friend? Uh, what were some of the issues, you know, that you had to deal with? What was, what were the things you loved to do as friends? And then had them look at it today. And again, this isn't, for most of them, it's not that big of a change, you know, and I usually say, you know, think about around, you know, 9, 10, 11, um, and then move to your present age. Um, and, and they would see this big shift in what they look for in friends. And then they'd see, you know, and say, how many of you are still friends today with those friends from childhood? Um, and if, if not, why? And so I just love doing that activity. And it just got students talking, talking, talking. Like they just, it really resonated with them. So I thought, I want to do mm-hmm. a whole class on this. Um, and there's also a concept of Pepper Schwartz, um, is a uh, researcher at, um, out in Washington State. And she's done a lot about peer partnerships and marriages. And finding that really successful marriages have aspects of friendship. Hmm. Um, and so we use those pieces. And I just was able to pull a lot of family pieces that how do we build our families and relationships to those qualities of friendship. So it was a blast to teach that. Um, and then I did get the award again a third time in 2014. Um, we had some things happen with um, um, so, uh, just some faculty uh, that I had to co- provide coverage for last year, and I was to teach my class, but I'm actually teaching it in the fall of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing social media and family um, because I'm, again, just so curious about when I ask students, you guys always get right on your cell phones and call people the minute you leave class. Who are you talking to? And mom is the number one answer. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, poor dad. Don't you guys ever call your dad? <laughs> I can attest to that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it just, I just thought, wow. And then, you know, are you Facebook friends with your parents? Are they on Instagram with you? Do they know your Twitter feed? You know, I just, I just thought, this is so, how do, so we're actually going to do a research. They're going to write an IRB and come up with the process of, and kind of ask Ohio U students, you know, what, how do you stay connected to your family with social media? How is how do you think it enhances your relationships or det- you know detracts? So I'm going to let the students kind of help create the answers or mm-hmm. the questions that lost. So the whole semester will be a research project and and looking at writings um, and scholarly work on social media and um, the impact on family. That's going to be a fascinating study. I hope that uh, when when the course gets done, that you and maybe some of your students will come back and and let us talk about that, because I, I think it will really be illuminating about how students use social media to maintain familial bonds. Exactly, definitely. And also um, for us to work on a manuscript, you know, and just that we would all be the authors on. So mm-hmm. I just, I'm really excited. I I just wasn't able to teach it. It was supposed to teach it in 2015, and again, because of um, just needing to provide some coverage in our department, um, I wasn't able to fit it in, but <clears throat> we'll be in the fall. Yeah. You know, um, the, the most uh, significant battles in our family is when uh, my wife or I will tag our daughter on a Facebook post and she will get so mad at us unless it's, and you know, unless it fits in exactly what, you know, she expects us to tag her in. But if we, um, you know, if we don't, if we're not careful, we will, we will reap the wrath of a 14 year old um, by tagging her on Facebook posts. So yeah. I, <laughs> and then they, 
Yeah, and then they often delete it, which is like hurts right. my feelings. Like, right. You deleted that. My niece says that to me all the time. I'm like, oh my god, that was like a sweet moment we had, and you deleted it. <laughs> well, I just didn't want my friend saying it. it was so embarrassing. Yep, yep. No, it wasn't. It was sweet. <laughs> like, yeah, so those are the kinds of things I think that'll be so interesting. And and now our students are of age where they've had years of this already. Uh-huh. So it'll be interesting to have some questions where they reflect back on their social media behavior with their families and how it's changed now that they're older. Yeah. Cheney, I've just got one last question. Uh, have you, as a teacher, you know, because you clearly have, uh, you know, a very broad and, and deep understanding of of the people that are in your, entering your classroom, both from an applied and also a theoretical perspective, has it changed how you engage your students when you're teaching a class? Um, I think so. I mean, part of it is going from, you know, I think like all of us, we started out teaching a class that used to have 40 people in it or 30, and now we find it has like 60 <laughs> or 150. Um, so certainly I've changed with that. I've also had to change to how do I not compete with the stuff that's distracting them? You know, I mm-hmm. struggle with that still. How do I, how do I adapt, um, uh, you know, laptops up and cell phones, um, and what what policies do I put in place? I, I still struggle with that. Um, and when I do have policies, I always just, I feel like I'm explaining them, mm-hmm. sometimes multiple times, especially when I just have a class with just child and family studies students, and I'll say, you know, I want the cell phones put away. Um, does anybody remember why that's so important to me? And then, you know, I try to get them to remember that. Yes, Jenny, supervisors say that it's the number one irritation of them working <laughs> with us. So like, uh-huh. yes. And so and it's an irritation of mine as well. Um, if I'm speaking about something and I look at somebody and their head's buried. So I try to, I feel like I've had to do more of that. Um, I also have, you know, when I first started, I didn't really talk about classroom rules. Um, and now I, every class, no matter what I teach every single semester, no matter how, you know, no matter if I have a student and this is the third time he or she has had me, I just start out with, I want you guys to know what's important to me in setting a safe, great environment to be a student in this class. And for me as a professor, and then I invite them to say, what matters to you? And I have learned a lot from them. Um, for example, you know, you talk too fast or, uh, you know, you're too... Students come up and ask you questions when they turn in their exam, and we're still taking exams. So please shut up. You know, like, this is great. Keep telling me. You know, I need to. So I make sure nobody engages me mm-hmm. in conversations um, while I'm giving exams. I make it very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> so I've learned a lot, and I, I just feel like I, I, I've never, you know, knock on wood, but I've never had true behavioral issues in the classroom in the 18 years of teaching at OU. Mm-hmm. And I really, um, you know, you have a, a couple, you know, talkers that I've had to pull aside um, or the person whose head is, you know, buried in their cell phone when I've said a thousand times and I've had to have personal conversations and send them emails and say, I really want you to, you know, work on this behavior. But, I, and I, it's been fortunate, very wonderful experience. Um, so, but I do feel that responsibility to set some guidelines now. Mm-hmm. And knowing that if I set it on day one, I'm not dropping a bomb somewhere in the middle of class. Right. 
Well, Jenny, I want to thank you for being a guest on Teaching Matters, and I want to wish you well as you complete your sabbatical and look forward to seeing you back on campus in the fall. Yes, thank you so much, and thank you for considering me for this experience. It was a wonderful conversation to have with you. I agree. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Special thanks to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University's Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you.